the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Monday, February 1st, 2021. Charles Blow in the New York Times writes, quote, It is urgent that black people consolidate political power now. In my view, the acquisition of black power has reached a level of urgency while rivaling that of the climate crisis. Immediate action is required, but it may very well already be too late. Close quote. What are the two main urgencies that he identifies? Reparations and voting rights that stand to benefit black people, he says. When it comes to reparations, folks, we are talking about money from people who were never slave owners to people who were never slaves or even in large part never descended from slaves. As Larry Elder put it, there's another problem. He asks, what about people like Kamala Harris? Her father is from Haiti, and he has admitted that in his family they own slaves. So does Kamala Harris pay a check or does she receive a check? What about Barack Obama? White mom, father from a hot point of slave trading. Does Obama pay a check or does he get a check? As for voting rights, it has been illegal to discriminate voting rights in America since 1965. And for my money, if we wanted to truly ensure one man, one vote, we would have voter identification laws. As I can think of no better reform to ensure someone's vote will count, can be checked upon, can be investigated, and it would have a record with it, not to mention an impetus for the voting effort on an individual basis. So talk of black power today, especially if it's come down to those two major foci, seem to me a set of solutions to an ever-expanding cascade of demands that will never be met and will never solve the main problems in our country right now. More from Larry Elder. I will quote, In 1964, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. appeared on a BBC news show. The host asked King about Attorney General Robert Kennedy's prediction, an audacious one at the time, that a black man could be elected president 40 years out. King thought it would not take that long. Quote, there are certain problems and prejudices and mores in our society which make it difficult now. However, I am very optimistic about the future. Frankly, I have seen certain changes in the United States over the last two years that surprise me. On the basis of this, I think we may be able to get a Negro president, his words, in less than 40 years. I would think that this could come in 25 years or less. It took 44 years. The day after the election of President Barack Obama, front page stories in newspapers all over the country, including the New York Times, quoted black parents saying things like, quote, for the first time in my life, I can truly look my child in the eye and say, yes, you can become president someday. A tearful Jesse Jackson said he never thought he would see the day. Representative John Lewis said, quote, I feel very grateful that I'm still here to be here during this unbelievable historic moment in our country. This is a day of Thanksgiving and a night of celebration. It's, unbe it's unbelievable that we have come such a distance in such a short time to see a young African-American man elected president of the United States. Close quote. It's difficult to overstate the significance of the election of Barack Obama. As recently as the 1950s, polls showed the majority of Americans said they would never vote for a black person for president, no matter how qualified. But in 2007, 
Then-Senator Obama, speaking at a historically black church in Alabama on the 42nd anniversary of the Selma March, talked about our country's great progress in race relations. America, Obama said, is, quote, 90% of the way there, close quote. Obama said, quote, I'm here because somebody marched for our freedom. I'm here because you all sacrificed for me. I stand on the shoulders of giants. I thank the Moses generation. But we have got to remember now that Joshua still had a job to do. The previous generation, the Moses generation, pointed the way. They took us 90% of the way there, but we, the Joshua generation, still got that 10% in order to cross over to the other side. Close quote. Now, this 90% occurred before Obama's election and subsequent re-election, so presumably we can carve into the remaining 10% a little, can't we? But what a difference a few years makes. A couple things occurred. First, the election of a black person did not bring about the expected hope in change. In fact, the percentage of blacks living in poverty increased under Obama. Shortly before Obama's election, a supporter at a campaign rally named Peggy Joseph famously gushed about what an Obama victory would mean. Quote, I won't have to worry about putting gas in my car. I won't have to worry about paying my mortgage. You know, if I help him, he'll help me, close quote. Well, guess what? Barbara Bush was right when she said, your success as a family, our success as a society depends not on what happens at the White House, but what happens inside your own house, close quote. On the other side of this, as Patricia Anwuka has written, the economic progress that lifted median black household incomes to their highest levels on record and pushed black unemployment rates and poverty rates down to their lowest records on to their lowest levels on record resulted from Donald Trump's policies. Now, this obviously creates a massive problem in the black power movement because it is based on the notion that there is a need for black power, right? This all comes to us as a new book on the topic from Charles Blow comes to us at the commencement this month of Black History Month, first recognized nationally in the United States by President Gerald Ford in 1976, a Republican. Good. I'm glad there's a Black History Month. In September, there is a Hispanic American History Month, though I think it gets much less play and prominence. There's an Asian American Heritage Month in May, though I think it gets much less play and prominence yet, which comes at the same time as Jewish History Month, which still yet gets less play and prominence. It's all okay, I think, though interesting that Hispanic Americans constitute a much larger share of our population than black Americans. And yet the question I think we avoid is what is the point of these identity months? Is it for more appreciation of our entirety of people, or is it used for separation and division? When you hear the need for claims of a new black power movement, I worry about that. About 30 years ago, the historian Arthur Schlesinger wrote this, quote, What happens when people of different ethnic origins speak different language and professing different regions settle in the same geographical locality and live under the same political sovereignty? Unless a common purpose binds them together, tribal antagonism will drive them apart. So we face a critical question. What is it that holds a nation together? No one in the 19th century thought more carefully about representative government than John Stuart Mill. The two elements that defined a nation, as Mill saw, were the desire on the part of the inhabitants to be governed together and the common sympathy instilled by shared history, values, language. Free institutions, he wrote, quote, are next to impossible in a country made up of different nationalities. 
among a people without fellow feeling, especially if they read and speak different languages, united public opinion, necessary to the working of representative government, cannot exist. It is in general a necessary condition of free institutions that the boundaries of government should coincide in the main with those of nationalities, close quote. Schlesinger continues, however, countries break up when they fail to give ethnically diverse peoples compelling reasons to see, to see themselves as part, as, as part of the same nation. Think about it. E pluribus unum. Out of, one, uh, out of many one, or one out of many, either way. The United States had a brilliant solution for the inherent fragility, the inherent combustibility of a multi-ethnic society. The creation of a brand new national identity by individuals who, in forsaking, forsaking old loyalties and joining to make new lives, melted away ethnic differences. A national identity that absorbs and transcends the diverse ethnicities that come to our shore, ethnicities that enrich and reshape the common culture and the very act of entering into it. He concludes, in a world savagely rent by ethnic and racial antagonisms, it is all the more essential that the United States continue as an example of how a highly differentiated society holds itself together. Close quote. I think about this a lot and I worry about it a lot because unity is a more than one way street. And it makes me want to quote John Wayne. The hyphen Webster's dictionary defines is a symbol used to divide a compound word or a single word, different creeds and different races to form a nation to become as one. Yet look at the harm a line has done. I think I should like all these directions more if we spoke and thought less about black power or any ethnic group power, but instead spoke of American or America's power. That, of course, requires a love of America or a pride in it at a very minimum. Do we still have it? Do we still hold our truths to be self-evident? And just what are they seen as today? It's awfully hard to merge honor and esteem equality when you are at the same time pushing, promulgating, and forcing notions of supremacy and power. Equality and supremacy are nearly antagonistic to one another, be it black power or white power. And it seems to me it's awfully hard to approach and attend equality or the absence of racism, if you prefer, when one group is pitted against another. In the late 1970s, Alan Dershowitz wrote a brief in the famed Bakke case, and he wrote this, quote, Although different racial groups in this country may well have different interests, there is no such thing as a group right under the 14th Amendment. If an individual is denied admission to a state institution, even though he is better qualified than others who have been accepted, and if the denial is due to the fact that he is or is not a member of a particular racial or ethnic group, his personal and individual right to be free from discrimination has been infringed. Accordingly, the fact that members of other groups have suffered discrimination in the past can be no justification for present discrimination against an individual. So I think maybe we'd do well to remember all this as we celebrate all our history. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. I hope you had a good weekend. Six zero two five zero eight 
800-529-0960. Portions of this show are brought to you by Balance of Nature, my favorite supplement, my favorite product I've ever uh, endorsed or recommended and taken myself. They use a unique cold press process to get all natural vine ripened fruits and veggies picked at the peak of ripeness into their vegetarian capsules. If you can't swallow or don't want to swallow capsules, they're super easy to just open and sprinkle into food or drink if you prefer it that way. I just take them as capsules. No sugar, no chemicals, no GMO. You get in one daily dose 31 different fruits and veggies. And they have a great deal right now where you get 35% off and free shipping on your first order of uh, on your first preferred order of balance of nature check them out at balanceofnature.com make sure and use discount code balance or give them a call at 800-246-8751 make sure to use discount code balance that's balanceofnature.com i am um as many regular listeners know, I am fascinated by the um, – I don't know if that's the right word, but I, I've been paying close attention to and, and, and somewhat obsessed with uh, the direction of the culture and the cultural institutions and elites and cultural and elite opinion and how far different, how fast and different it has moved um, away from uh, things most of us used to know and take for granted um, – Particularly, you see it in the kinds of things in our school curriculum I was talking about last week. Um, coloring books on t- transgenderism, etc., teaching toddlers about racism, etc. Um, Victor Davis Hansen gives a nice summary. Professor Hansen, he's a historian, by the way, who was on the 1776 Commission. The New York Times said had no historians on it. Yeah, it's like listening to the – he is a historian. It's like saying listen to the science or follow the science. No, it's listen to the science and follow the scientists we like. We don't like Victor Davis Hanson, so he's not a historian according to the New York Times. He is a perfectly well-credentialed academic historian. He even has a PhD, not a EDD. He can be called Dr. Hanson. Um he writes, to be a silica – just gives you an idea of, of the range in which I'm talking and how, how deep it is in the culture. To be a Silicon Valley executive, a prominent Wall Street player, the head of a prestigious publishing house, a university president, a network or PBS anchor, a major Hollywood actress, a retired general or admiral on a corporate board, or an NBA superstar requires either – progressive credentials, or careful suppression of all political affinities. He writes, according to the Center for Responsive Politics, 90% of big tech political donations went to Democrats in 2020. Think of that. 98% of big tech political donations went to Democrats in 2020. Think they'd have a reason to engage in deplatforming of conservatives? Maybe. Maybe they have a vested interest in it. 98% of big tech political donations went to Democrats in 2020. Censorship and deplatforming on Twitter, Facebook, and other social media companies is one way. When Mark Zuckerberg and others in Silicon Valley donate $500 million to help officials get out the vote, in particular precincts, it's not to help candidates of both parties. My friend Jim was saying he thinks this was the biggest deciding factor in the election. How big... Um, Social media went 
in getting out the vote in particular communities. Google calibrates the order of its search results with a progressive, not a conservative, bent. Grantees from the Clinton or Obama administration find sinecures in Silicon Valley, not Republicans or conservatives. We were just talking the other day about a new vice president at Facebook. A vice president for civil rights at Facebook as if it's the Justice Department. Came out of the Clinton Justice Department. Believe it or not, yes, believe it. The 4.5 trillion market capitalized big tech cartels run by self-described progressives aimed to extinguish conservative brands like Parler. Ironically, they now apply ideological force multipliers to the very strategies and tactics of 19th century robber baron trusts and monopolies. Poor Jack Dorsey has never been able to explain why Twitter deplatforms and cancels conservatives for the same supposed uncouthness that leftists routinely employ. Silicon Valley apparently does not believe in either the letter or the spirit of the First Amendment. It exercises a monopoly over the public airwaves and resists regulations and antitrust legislation of the sort that liberals once championed to break up trusts in the late 19th and 20th centuries. As payback, it assumes that Democrats don't see big tech in the same manner that they claim to see big pharma in their rants against it. Wall Street donated markedly in favor of Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and Joe Biden in their respective presidential races. Whereas conservative administrations and congressional majorities are seen as natural supporters of free market capitalism, it's their Democratic opponents who not long ago were not and thus drew special investor attention and support from Wall Street realists. Think about the GameStop insurrection as stock debacle reveals how liberals on Wall Street reacted with a less connected group of investors and sought to do what Wall Street grandees routinely do to others, ambush and swarm a vulnerable company stock in unison either to buy or sell it en masse and thus to profit from predictable, artificially huge fluctuations in the price. When small investors at Reddit drove the pedestrian GameStop price up to well over 100 times its worth, forcing big Wall Street investment companies to lose billions of dollars, progressives on Wall Street and the business media cried foul. They compared the Reddit buyers, yes they did, to the mob that stormed the Capitol on January 6. One subtext was, why would nobodies dare question the mega profit-making monopolies of the Wall Street establishments? point that neither the Reddit day traders nor the hedge fund connivers were necessarily healthy for investment was completely lost. Surveys of diverse university faculty show overwhelmingly left-wing support, reified by asymmetrical contributions of 95 to 1 to Democratic candidates. Reified by asymmetric, those are great words. Reified, to reify means to make physical, concrete, as asymmetrical means obviously off balance. 95 to 1 university faculties. 95 to 1 to Democratic candidates. You want to send your kids to those faculties so they can learn over the course of four or five years, increasingly five years now. You want to learn, you want to learn, you, you want to send them to, to four and five years uh, schools to undermine everything you tried to give them in their first 18 years? You can do it. I don't recommend it. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show at 3.34. It's time for a culture and economy update as per usual with the great John Dombrowski from Grand Canyon Planning Associates, grandcanyonplanning.com. 
his website. Happy Monday. Happy February, John. Yeah, first day of February. Hey, on a side side note today, uh, before we get into our topic, uh, 2003 Columbia Space Shuttle mission. You know, and of course, uh, it was the day that that uh, unfortunate disaster occurred. Uh, But what was interesting today in the news is SpaceX to fly first mission to space with all civilian crew later this year. So here we are 18 years later, and we're sending um, civilian people into space. If you had whatever it is that you have to do Mm -hmm. to get on that uh, trip, (laughs) Major Tom, ground control to Major Tom. The money Well, I don't know if it's money or lottery, golden ticket, whatever. Would you do it? I would seriously think about it. You would? Yeah. I would. I would really think Good about this. You. This would be in a pretty amazing... Yeah, I could see you doing that. Yeah, yeah, I think I could do it. Me, not so much. Oh, come on. No, no, no. The, yeah. the ground control to Major Tom thing. <laughs> this rocket man. All, all, all my music, stuff. My music uh, affinities keep me from wanting to yeah. go to space just what yet. Was it either? Uh, yeah. yeah. Hey, <laughs> you were really good last week in explaining the whole GameStop to us. Yeah. It still is roiling around a little bit. I see it. It's yeah. a headline, GameStop saga heads to Netflix in the big screen, Robinhood raises another two point four billion, yes, all, yeah. more than the company has ever raised in its entire. Any any afterthoughts from you, or or, or do you want to move to an interesting investment philosophy? Yeah, I would I would about? just say when it comes to to those types of uh, risky plays like that, just be very cautious. Be very cautious. That's all. Yeah, and That's you'll all, help because you might get caught yeah. on one side of the trade or the yep. other. You might have a good day, but boy, you can also have you a can pretty have bad a really day. bad day. Yeah. yeah. Talk to me about investor psychology because that kind of plays into so it. So here's bit. an interesting yeah. thing. Last week, Seth was a difficult day. Right. A difficult week, I, I should say, for the markets. Even though we had a couple of positive days, overall and all, it was probably the worst week since uh, October of Is that right? 2020. I guess I didn't fully appreciate it. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it really happened all on Friday when we had that big pullback. Right. Um, but then today, of course, the market completely rebounded, and we had uh, the NASDAQ almost recover all of its losses for last week right. in just one day. So where where I, I'm looking at this is because I had – it was interesting. I had a couple of appointments that had canceled, and the reason they canceled was because they were nervous about what happened in the market last week. Okay. And I'm thinking to myself, you should be doing the complete opposite. In other words, I'm thinking about Seinfeld all of a sudden. Yeah. I'm just going to do the complete opposite oh, yeah, right, of everything right, right, right. I've ever done in my life because yeah, yeah. everything I do it is wrong. It worked out for George. Yeah. It goes up to the yeah. girl, and he right. goes, hi, I'm George. <laughs> I live with my parents, and I'm unemployed. Right. She said, oh, have a seat, George. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. And then that changed his life yeah. because he did everything opposite of what he thought he should do. Sure. And here's a perfect example. When the market had that pullback, do we think if you've got 10 years – to invest your money over a 10-year period of time, do you feel confident that the market over a 10-year period of time is going to be higher in 10 years than it is today? Um, And with that pullback we had last week, we had a perfect opportunity, uh, and we did last week. I was purchasing uh, for our clients last week. I'm not buying today when the market's up the way it is. I'm going to be you know, buying at the right time. So when the market pulls back, gives us an opportunity uh, to take advantage of that. So the nervousness that occurred with the, with these couple of people who canceled their appointments with me, if they're listening out there, I just want them to know that it's really probably the opposite of what you should be doing if you are a long-term investor. And that's what I preach is long-term investing. We're not here for the short term. If we are, then we probably shouldn't be investing uh, in the markets. And you know what's interesting over the past couple of weeks we've been hearing even a lot of the professionals out there call wall street a casino right all of a sudden yeah 
And, you know, that was kind of a taboo thing. We didn't like to call it a casino because we don't want you to think you're gambling with your money. Right. Because true gambling with your money uh, means that you're going to you have a chance of losing it all. Sure. Right. Sure. And that's not our philosophy here, at least with with my own portfolios, with our clients, is, is we're in this for the long haul. Yeah. Well, the markets have gyrations go up and down. Of course they will. But. Historically, if we look at the markets over decades of time, they've performed very well and they've made people uh, a lot of money and given people a lot of opportunity to retire uh, in a style that they would like to retire in. And so I have to encourage people not to be emotional about the markets, and that's what we're seeing. These people are being emotional about it because the market pulled back last week. I like think, that. Think differently. Think differently. Yes. I like that. The old Apple commercial. Mm. Although I think theirs was grammatically incorrect. Theirs was think different. You have it right with think differently. Differently, yeah. Yeah, pretty sure. And I just got lucky by saying that. Because <laughs> <laughs> I did the opposite of everything I would normally do. There you do. go. <laughs> All right, Seth, thank you. <laughs> Securities and advisory services offered to Client One Securities LLC, a member of Finra and Sipic, and an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Go to our website, GrandCanyonPlanning.com. Thank Thanks. you, John Dabrowski. We'll check in with you mañana. Thank you. You bet. And if you want to call me, I'm at 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. I want to uh, finish what I was saying about uh, this Victor Davis Hansen column on why are progressives so illiberal? And um, it's great. So I was telling you about uh, a survey of university faculty showing 95 to 1 contributions, political contributions, to Democratic candidates. He writes, the dream of Martin Luther King Jr. to make racial inc- – excuse me, the dream of Martin Luther King Jr. to make race incidental to our characters no longer exists on our campuses. Appearance is now es- essential. More ironic, class considerations are mostly ignored in favor of identity politics. Equity applies to race, not class. That's a really interesting point. Equity, with with all its financial implications, implications applies to race, not class. The general education curricula is one-sided and mostly focused on deductive studies courses, and in particular race, class, gender, zealotry. That is anti-enlightenment in the sense that predetermined conclusions are established and selected evidence is assembled to prove them. You think you saw any of this with the COVID shutdown lockdown philosophy? You bet you did. We are also currently witnessing the greatest assault on free speech and expression and due process in the last 70 years. And the challenges to the First and Fifth Amendments are centered on college campuses where non-progressive speakers are disinvited, shouted down, and occasionally roughed up for their supposedly reactionary views, and by those who have little fear of punishment. Students charged with sexual harassment or assault are routinely routinely denied the right to face their accusers, cross-examine witnesses, or bring in counter-evidence. They usually find redress for their suspensions or or expulsions only in the courts. What was thematic in the Duke lacrosse fiasco and the University of Virginia sorority rape hoax was the absence of any real individual punishment for those who promulgated the myths. Might one not also find that true of Jussie Smollett? Indeed, in these cases, many argued that false allegations, in effect, were not so important in comparison to bringing attention to supposedly systemic racism and sexism. 
Yes, he writes, in Jussie Smollett fashion, fashion, what did not happen at least drew attention to what could have happened and thus was valuable. It was as if those who did not commit any actual crime had still committed a thought crime. Almost all media surveys of the last four years reflect a clear journalistic bias against conservatives in general. Harvard's liberal Shorenstein Center on the Media, Politics, and Public Policy famously reported slanted coverage against Trump and his supporters among major television and news outlets at near astronomical rates, in some cases exhibiting over 90% negative bias during Trump's first months in office. Liberal editors can now be routinely fired or forced to retire from major progressive newspapers if they are not seen sufficiently woke. No major journalist or reporter has been reprimanded for promoting the fictional Russian collusion hoax, and certainly not in the manner the media has called for punishment, blacklisting, and deplatforming for any who championed stopped the steel protests over the November 2020 elections. The CNN newsroom put their hands up and chanted, hands up, don't shoot, a myth surrounding the Michael Brown Ferguson shooting that was thoroughly refuted. Infamous now is the CNN reporter's characterization of arsonist flames shooting up in the background of a BLM Antifa riot as largely peaceful. BLM, of course, has been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. After the summer rioting, one could better cite Tacitus's Caligus, where they make a desert they call a peace. A George W. Bush or Donald Trump press conference was often a free-for-all, blood-in-the-water feeding frenzy. Barack Obama or Joe Biden version devolves into banalities about pets, fashion, and food. The fusion media credo is why embarrass a progressive government and thus put millions and the planet itself at risk. Andrew Cuomo's policies of sending COVID-19 patients into rest homes led to thousands of unnecessary deaths. Still, the media gave him an Emmy Award for his self-inflated and bombastic press conferences, many of which were little more than unhinged rants against the Trump administration. Anthony Fauci's initial pronouncements about the origins of the COVID-19 virus, its risks and severity, travel bans, masks, herd immunity, vaccination rollout dates, and almost everything else about the pandemic were wildly off. Yet he was canonized by the media due to his wink and nod assurances that he was the medical adult in the Trump administration room. Will you get that mashup handy of Anthony Fauci? It would be difficult for a prominently conservative actor or actress to win an Oscar these days or to produce a major conservative-themed film. Bankable actors, directors, producers like Clint Eastwood or Mel Mel Gibson operate as mavericks whose films' huge profits win them some exemption, but they came into prominence and power 30 years ago in a different age, and they will have no immediate successors. Ars gratis doctrine is the new Hollywood, and it will continue until it bottoms out in financial nihilism. When such ideological spasms contort a society, the second rate emerge most prominently as the loudest accusers of the Salem witches, as if correct zeal can reboot careers installed in mediocrity. Hollywood's mediocre celebrities from Alec Baldwin to Noah Cyrus have sought attention for their careers by voicing sensational, racist, homophobic, and misogynistic slurs on the correct assumption that their attention-grabbing left-wing credentials prevents career cancellation. Hollywood, we learn, has been selecting some actors on the basis of lighter skin color to accommodate racist Beijing's demands to distribute widely their films in the enormous Chinese market. Yet, note well... 
that Hollywood has recently created racial quotas for particular Oscar categories, even as it reverses its racial obsessions to punish rather than empower people of color on the prompt of the Chinese paymasters. Ditto the political warping in professional sports. Endorsements, media face time, and cultural resonance often hinge on athletes either being woke or entirely politically somnolent, meaning asleep. A few stars may exist as known conservatives, but again, they are the rare exceptions. For most athletes, it is wisest to keep mum and either support, condone, or ignore the BLM rituals of taking a knee, not standing for the flag, or ritually denouncing conservative politicians. Those who are offended and turn the channel can be replaced by far more new viewers in China, don't you know? They appreciate such criticism directed at the proper target, after all. Again, what is common to all the tentacles of this progressive octopus is illiberalism, illiberalism. Of course, progressivism, which goes back to the 19th century advocacy for updating the Constitution, always smiled upon authoritarianism. It promoted the science of eugenics and forced race-based sterilization and the messianic idea that enlightened elites can use the increased powers of government to manage better the personal lives of its subjects, according to supposed pure reason and, of course, humanistic intent. No crime too great as long as you could base it in some humanistic intent. Let me finish this thought when we come right back. Bear with me. There's a reason I'm giving you all this from Victor Hansen, A, because it's brilliant but, and, and good, but B, you'll, you'll see in a minute. He, he finishes that progressivism patronizes the poor and champions them at a distance, but despises the middle class, the traditionally hated bourgeois without the romance of the distant, impoverished, or the taste and culture of the rich. The venom explains the wide array of epithets that Obama, Clinton, and Biden have so casually employed. Clingers, deplorables, irredeemables, dregs, ugly folks, chumps, and so on. Think about this. Occupy Wall Street was prepped by the media as a romance. The Tea Party was derided as Klan-like. The rioters who stormed the Capitol were dubbed lawbreakers rightfully. Those who besieged and torched a Minneapolis federal courthouse were romanticized or contextualized. Abstract humanitarian progressives assume that their superior intelligence and training properly should exempt them from the bothersome ramifications of their own ideology. They promote high taxes and mock material indulgence. But some have made a science out of tax evasion and embrace the tasteful good life and its material attractions. They prefer private schooling and Ivy League education for their offspring while opposing charter and school choice for others. There is no dichotomy in insisting on more race-based admissions and yet calling a dean or provost to help leverage a now tougher admission for one's gifted daughter. Sometimes the liberal Hollywood celebrity effort to get offspring stamped with the proper university credentials becomes felonious. Walls are retrograde but can be tastefully integrated into a gated estate. They like static class differences and likely resent the middle class for its opposing grasping effort to become rich like themselves. Reason I am so interested in this, folks, is if you don't understand it, understand the other thing, would you please? And you see it, you see it in story after story, particularly even in one 
in the New York Times today. And it's about how there is a massive divide in the conservative movement between the extreme Trumps, the extremist wing of Trump supporters and everyone else who wants to call themselves a conservative. For example, headline today, New York Times, an emboldened extremist wing flexes its power in a leaderless GOP. I don't believe it. I really don't believe it. I don't believe that 70 million people coalesce around one candidate for president. 70 plus million people, 74 million people coalesce around one Republican candidate for president and that that's considered all of them extremists. They want us divided. You want not want to know why they want us divided? Because if we are united, which is my plea, we have a lot of work to do to challenge everything Victor Davis Hanson outlined. It's a lot of work, and it's going to take every bit of our uniting to get it done.